Welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Learn the economics and technology of Bitcoin by listening to interviews with Bitcoin's best. For episode 64 today, my guest is Tor Demista. He's one of the long-standing Bitcoin investment writers, traders, and analysts. Having written about Bitcoin investment in 2012, Tor is highly influential, ranking 11th globally as a crypto influencer, and he's the founding partner of Adamant Capital. Here's the interview. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the show, Tor. I've been obviously reading a lot of your work and listening to some of your speeches over the years, so thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Stefan. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so Tor, I, th- I think you've been writing some fantastic stuff recently. Um, you've obviously written many influential pieces on Bitcoin and some of your most recent work is around essentially a, a primer on Bitcoin investment sentiment and changes in saving behavior. But I suppose before we get into some of those, it might be good to just talk a little bit about your overall approach and kind of your guiding philosophy there are, there are different ways and aspects in which we can view Bitcoin. Can you comment a little on some of those? Yeah, I mean, how I encountered Bitcoin, the background to that was in 2005, I was studying um, business cycle theory and the history of money and banking. And so I was just just kind of thinking about these cycles where regular recessions and even depressions the way you defend yourself against that is you just you know make sure that you have a lot of cash and then you can buy when everything's cheap but that changes if there's an inflationary depression because then the cash is not safe either so you need some kind of different answer uh, and in a depression nobody wants to buy anything so the only place to hide really is to find a liquid asset that and also everything defaults in a depression or or at least many many institutions do so you have to find a liquid asset that has low third-party risk, low counterparty risk. Uh, and so that's why I was drawn to gold and, and a lot of other people that uh, started investing in Bitcoin pretty early on originally had a, a gold background. Um, and that's kind of how I, I, I learned about Bitcoin, that, that to me it made sense as like a digital answer to gold because it did make sense to me that, you know, in the 21st century, we want digital money, like logging um, sorry, lugging gold bars around is just not very efficient. Um, and so um, that is kind of how I ran into Bitcoin. And, and so it, it it made sense to me as um, a collateral asset eventually. I think that's what we're heading towards um, as um, a reserve asset, um, as a savings instrument. And I think down the road, it's also going to become a financial benchmark, uh, a basis for lending, uh, really a, a standard in, in many different ways, um, similar to how, you know, over the centuries we started talking about a gold standard. I think Bitcoin is also going to become a, a standard. Fantastic. And I, I suppose we can already see the beginnings of some of this today, right? There are already some Bitcoin-backed lending products available. Yeah, true that. Um, yeah, and, and if you look at how uh, crypto traders think, often case what they'll do is uh, they'll kind of measure their performance in Bitcoin terms because, you know, why why would you do a lot of trading if you can just hold on to Bitcoin? But of course, if with your trading, you can enhance your performance above Bitcoin, then that makes sense. Um, and so I think that's going to develop more and more. And 
I mean, we have a significant pool of Bitcoin savers right now. I mean, probably between 60 to $80 billion worth of Bitcoins that are, that are out there. And so there are people, uh, and more and more people who, who own Bitcoin, but who would like to, to be rewarded for their patience to some extent. And the way you do that is that you, you lend them out in some way. And then uh, the interest rates that you get back, that is your reward for, for uh, relinquishing access to, to your capital for a while. And of course, you also incur risk to some extent. So, so it's also your reward for, for taking some risk. But that's essentially how um, the gold market worked for many, many centuries is that if you had um, a certain amount of gold, at some point you would diversify um, by investing into loans that would um, give you claim to a little bit more gold. And then you could kind of, ideally, you would be able to r- live off your interest. Precisely. And I suppose that may contrast a little bit with what some within kind of the Bitcoin world may, let's call it the quote-unquote hardcore hodler position, who believe in the fully not-your-keys-not-your-coins model. Um, but perhaps that model is... I guess I can sort of see two different arguments here. One argument would be, look, Bitcoin is going through this massive price appreciation. Why do you need to take on the risk of keeping your Bitcoins at some custodian when you can simply hold them yourself? But then on the other hand, it's, it's, there is an argument there around no return without risk. What do you think on that? Yeah, I think it's not either or. It's really like, you know, you see most clearly if you kind of... Um, imagine different use cases, different profiles of investors, different needs. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's a very um, profound insight that, it, you know, not your keys, not your coins, that the, it is true. Like if you, if you don't control your keys, then you are trusting a third party. And then the question is, are you comfortable with that? Um, we have to also take into account that the, the current state of Bitcoin does not or hasn't really allowed for insurance yet. Like only now with like um, players like Fidelity coming into into play, are we seeing like significant Bitcoin insurance, basically insurance against loss of funds, uh, against hacks and things like that. Um, and then, and, and so, you know, a lot of, a lot of Bitcoiners got scarred from uh, Mt. Gox. And before that there was, um, there were several uh, custodians that basically either did an exit scam or got hacked. Um, so I think it's this paranoia is very, very understandable, productive, important. But at the same time, we are seeing the custody ecosystem mature. And so I think as a, as a means of diversification, it does make sense to, um, to kind of look for a return on your Bitcoin, um, taking into account the volatility. And, you know, you have to think about a lot of things before doing that. Uh, and you have to, you know, put your just like how you diversify a traditional portfolio, um, you you have to think about it in that way as well for your Bitcoin portfolio. I think, um, and I think that you know there are arguments um, why you might want to trust all or part of your Bitcoins to a third party. Like if you have very limited technical ability, maybe the third party is going to be able to secure it in a better way than you do. And there's no reason to be restricted to just, to just one. Like you can have multiple third parties that uh, take care of parts of your Bitcoin. You can engage in multi-sig uh, storage where you know you only store one out of three keys with a third party so that they can kind of have a backup for you in case you lose um, one of your keys yourself. And so I'm talking about a multi-sig setup. 
um, that is going to become, I think, more and more popular where uh, rather than trusting a custodian to hold all of your Bitcoin, you trust them to hold one of your keys and say that your setup is, for example, three out of five multi-sig, you can give one key to three different custodians. So they store three keys uh, between them and then you have two. And then, of course, you have to trust that they're not going to collude, but you could, you know, there, there's all kinds of schemes possible there. Um it's just it's it's going to be really really interesting, and I think to some extent people underestimate how creative these uh, multi-sig schemes can become uh, to really cover a lot of edge cases where you might lose your Bitcoin. Um, even you know the time locks are super interesting as well, where you, um, for example, you have a two out of two multi-sig, and um, if if you know between you and the custodian, and if everything's normal, you just um, um, you just sign transactions, and then if if you don't sign a transaction for let's say six months, um, it's it's possible to create a contract that will then revert control um, to you um, as a single signatory, and then uh, and so that would basically mean that you can um, um, take away the power from your counterparty. Um, uh, if, for example, you don't trust them anymore, you can say, all right, I'm just not going to sign for six months. The power then goes back to me. But then there's another case where maybe you just lost that key. So then um, from what I hear, it, it should even be possible to um, to have another uh, mechanism that then over time reverts the power back to the third party. So that after, I, I'm, I'm, you know, we can talk a lot of detail here, but basically just to illustrate how flexible these um, these these signature structures can become to really get the best of, of both worlds of, of third party custody and then also control of your own keys. Exactly. And I think you, you make a very good point there that in the early days, these sorts of multi-signature, easy to use solutions were not available. And that as Bitcoin proceeds through these different phases, some of these more advanced techniques are becoming available. We're seeing more financialization. Uh, I think these are just some of the different phases of Bitcoin. So I, I noticed on your website, you listed some different phases. So you talked about this concept of discovery from 2008 to 2013, infrastructure 2013 to 2020, and then deployment 2020 to 2025. Do you want to just elaborate a little on those phases? Yeah, sure. Sure. So in my mind, Bitcoin is slowly maturing to becoming a full-fledged reserve asset, a full-fledged digital gold, um, a full-fledged money. Uh, and that just doesn't happen in, in one day. It just It goes in phases. Uh, historically also, there's like money, money never just appeared. It, it always evolved. Um, and so the way I see the first phase in Bitcoin is really discovery. It, it's hackers and coders who just found this interesting project. And I think that phase was roughly speaking from 2008 to 2013, where uh, we saw extreme volatility, um, uh, just very poor tools available. Like you, everything was command line based, uh, not a lot for investors or, or kind of, you know, lay people that was available. Um, and then I think that changed in 2013, with the price increasing and, and some VCs getting involved and some startups that were really trying to increase the appeal for Bitcoin to the to the, the general public, uh, we saw the first hardware wallets appear in 2013. Also, the first 
ASIC mining rigs. Um, so, so mining became more and more professionalized. Um, some improvements in custody, like 2013 is when Mt. Gox started seeing some very serious competition. Um, and, and it was also that you could see the decline in market share of, uh, of Mt. Gox, which to me was the epitome of the discovery phase, like just an incredibly poorly run um, exchange. Um, and then, uh, and I see this infrastructure phase going on even today, like uh, the financialization of Bitcoin is part of that where, you know, we just get Bitcoin futures, Bitcoin derivatives, um, uh, more advanced uh, ways to store Bitcoin, uh, the first instances of serious um, Bitcoin um, insurance. Uh, I, th I see that continue still maybe in 2020 uh, that you could call that the end of the infrastructure phase and the start of what I call the deployment phase is really, you know, let's call it the Windows 1995 moment when uh, we can really go mainstream. Um, and so that's when I see Bitcoin starting to be held by large hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, um, uh, where we have really a mature custody and insurance system. Uh, which doesn't mean that, you know, nobody's ever going to go bankrupt anymore, but at least there's, you know, more significant maturity uh, enough for mass adoption. So so that's kind of also where you probably could see the adoption rate go from 5 6% uh, today to, to really pass that inflection point of maybe 10%. Uh, if you look at internet adoption, I believe in, in 1995 in the U.S., 9% of households had internet. And of course, we all know today it's it's well above 80%. So so I think we could see that in 2020, um, 2021 is, is really that we would move past that inflection point and, and get mainstream adoption of, of Bitcoin. Precisely. And the other thing with this, if you're thinking as an investor, as a trader, then it's a question of how do you deploy your capital? And I think one of the difficult problems that many people have faced is the difficulty of simply generating a return over and above Bitcoin. And so when they're thinking about investing in a company, they have to now worry, well, hang on. In fact, very few companies in this space have done better than simply holding Bitcoin. So do you have any thoughts on, you know, thought on how achievable that is and ways to think about that? Yeah, it's, it's a complex question. Uh, there are several things to take into account. Like one is obviously taxation, uh, usually for, you know, if capital gains are taxed, basically the more you move, the more you trade, the more likely you're going to be uh, facing higher taxes. So that's one thing to take into account is that longer term strategies are, are uh, going to yield better results on average. Um, uh, when you think about lending Bitcoin, you have to think about, um, again, how is, how is it going to be taxed? Um, there is some, it, it's actually unclear how that is in the U.S., for example, uh, and in other places, um, how Bitcoin loans exactly are taxed. And of course, you're dealing with counterparty risk uh, if you're talking about lending. Uh, and I think also another challenge um and, and I mean, I'm listing the challenges here, but I do think that Bitcoin lending is going to become huge. I think it's going to be a huge, huge market um, over time. And, and Bitcoin is going to basically be a, a very sought after source of capital in the long run. Um, but it, it'll take time to mature. Uh, one of the challenges in the short term with lending out Bitcoin is that um, in a bull market, when the price goes up a lot, then you um, 
these counterparties uh, potentially have more and more trouble to repay the loan because you know what was initially uh, let's say a hundred thousand dollar loan becomes five hundred thousand or a million if, if Bitcoin really is in one of those big big rallies. Um, so that's something to take into account. Um, there is also the strategy of um, switching, uh, converting your Bitcoin into mining gear and, and deciding to switch to, uh, to Bitcoin mining. I think um, that is very difficult to do well. I think it is possible to enhance your Bitcoin returns by doing that. Uh, and I think historically, like we did some work on this and it looks like if you can time the top in a good way, um, then um, you will likely be able, even after taxes, you will likely be able to um, generate a return above and beyond Bitcoin. But there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of caveats there. And by the way, this is not financial advice. This is just, um, you know, me thinking out loud and, and, and having thought about some of these general strategies. Um, but uh, the challenge there is that there's operational risk, obviously. So So you need to make sure that, if you sell your Bitcoin and then you buy the equipment, that the equipment arrives, that it's in good quality, that your electricity costs are are low low enough, because that's the trap of, of bull markets is that you see mining pop up everywhere, even at you know electricity costs of you know seven cents a kilowatt, eight nine, um, and that's all doable in, in a raging bull market. But as soon as the price drops, then it becomes extremely competitive. Like right now, it's it's very hard to be competitive if you have um, five cents electricity costs or higher. Um, you really have to go lower than that. So, so generally speaking, you know, in terms of timing, you have to be at the top of the market when you decide to convert into mining. Um, so that's a timing challenge and an operational challenge because, yeah, there's just very, very, you, you know, you're competing with the entire world, basically. Miners could be anywhere. Um, and then another strategy is to um, is to basically use your Bitcoin as collateral, and um, and in in a bear market um, um, borrow uh, borrow somewhat against that, uh, basically lever up slightly, and um, and acquire some more Bitcoin, and then as the the market goes up, you'll be able to repay that loan, and and whatever's left is basically your alpha. That's another strategy, and I think that's that's probably the most promising strategy because it's it's tax efficient. Um, uh, you have to, you know, obviously you have to know what you're doing. You have to time the market well, but um, in in general terms, I think that is a that's a viable long term strategy. Right, and I think I'm curious actually. That brings up the question: this whole concept of can we time the market? And obviously, there are debates around whether TA is a thing and so on. My view is essentially that it's sort of like poker, right? There might be the top 5% who can, who actually can make money, but then probably that bottom 95%, many of those people are either breaking even or losing money, right? And in this analogy, maybe a person who's good at poker is because they sort of know the game better and they can kind of, you know, they play their chips better, they play their cards better. I suppose a person who is good at uh, let's say timing the market is it then in your view is it that they are better at kind of perceiving the emotional bias or perceiving the uh, the thoughts of the other people in the market better well there's there's a number of things to that um, 
I think nobody can exactly time the market. Like that is just impossible. Like calling the exact bottom, calling the exact top, um, uh, that's not possible. And I think that, you know, the good news is that it's not necessary. Um, if you can, if you can roughly get it right and you have appropriate risk management, then, uh, you can outperform the market. Uh, and I think that's been proven time and time again. And I think one of the biggest challenges for traders is just to get to, to accept that and to have the humility that you cannot get it right. And so that you're, um, you have to really manage risk in in a, in a significant way, and and just be aware that you can you can get it wrong, and and then have contingency plans for if it goes wrong, how to how to unwind your position and things like that, and really kind of also emotionally and and practically prepare for scenarios where you get it wrong. Uh, I think that's really what um, differentiates successful. Uh, speculators from unsuccessful speculators, and then I, what you're what you get at, I think, is is also true that um, you know having a feel for the market, for the emotions that are alive in the market, I think is uh, is very valuable, and that's where uh, I think experience comes into play. Where you obviously you know no no two markets are the same, and no no two f- different phases in the same market will ever be exactly the same. But, but getting an emotional feel for um, for markets, I do think you can develop uh, somebody who's been studying oil, the oil markets for, for a decade is going to have a, a significant advantage over somebody who's new to them and, and understand better what, you know, what drives them um, in, in terms of price. And that's the same goes for Bitcoin, uh, where you, you know, uh, I, I mean, for example, me, I've been in this market for seven years. Um, and I've made I've made some mistakes, and I've paid I've paid my uh, my dues um, uh, to some extent because I always traded with a very very small amounts because I knew I was kind of putting myself through Bitcoin trading university, which you know nobody had ever done. But uh, I think that's you just have to be aware that you you're a novice uh, if you start in a new market. Um, so I always traded with very small amounts to kind of learn the ropes. Um, and, and, and the interesting thing with Bitcoin is that there are some quantitative sources of information available that are very hard, if not impossible, to acquire in other asset classes. And I think that's really, it's fascinating and, and very valuable and, and it can allow you to get an edge over um, other people. And also, of course, the choice of your, of those quantitative measures is vital, right? If, if you, it, it, it's not enough to see a pattern um, because patterns can be broken, it's it's very important to understand why a certain pattern might matter or might not matter. So I think those are some of the things, some of the ways to think about how to time the market, um, how, how to work on your skills in that regard. Uh, one of one of the ways for, that's been helpful for me is to be active on social media, especially on Twitter, because uh, it's almost like you just have your finger on the pulse every day. You see what traders are saying, uh, what people are doing. The kind of calls that they're making that's been really valuable for me to, to kind of get get signals from um, from the market let's now talk a little bit about some of the historical approaches to assessing bitcoin because some of these you mentioned in your article and obviously you know just having been around the space there have been different approaches so i think one very popular one was trace mayer's 200 day moving average which kind of also became known as the mayer multiple do you want to comment a little on that one Sure, sure. Yeah. So, so it's true. Like how to value Bitcoin has just been 
it's been a mystery to people and, and, and something that people really have been thinking about since 2010. Like, how, how do you value Bitcoin? It's not a stock. It's not, it's not a company. It's, it's, it's a probably commodity, but it's very scarce. So you, you can't just look at supply and demand in the way that you can with, um, with maybe wheat or oil or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, early on, people came up with these different approaches and, uh, I think what Trace saw in 2012 was that um, uh, basically his his core observation is Bitcoin is in a long-term secular uptrend and it's very, very volatile. So what can we do to smoothen out that volatility to then decide whether or not Bitcoin is kind of deviating from the general trend? And that's how he came up with the, I think other people named it the, the mayor multiple. But yeah, he suggested that 200-day uh, 200 daily moving average uh, of of the market cap of Bitcoin, uh, and so I think yeah, there, that's an absolutely valid way to um, to look at um, at Bitcoin. I do think there's um, the danger there can be that it's kind of self-referential because you only look at you know you try to predict the price based on price information, um, which is you know, not bad in itself. But I think you always want to find sources. Um, of, of data and, and, and measures that will independently confirm or, or you know, potentially contradict uh, what, what your uh, moving average says. Right, yeah. It's a good point there around needing some form of external data input rather than just simply just looking at the price trend. Um, but then, then there were other aspects there that do build on aspects around that. So another example is NVT. So how do you view nvt then yeah this this first was suggested in um in early 2014 it was somebody on um i think on bitcoin talk who suggested um this thing called network value like he he said basically let's look at how how fast bitcoin addresses are growing and um map that out against its market capitalization. And so there will be times when you have relatively more address growth and a relatively low market cap. Maybe that's when Bitcoin is undervalued. Um, and, and, and it's kind of similar to, um, it, it, it's, it's the idea is that the address growth is a proxy for user growth. And so it, 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 it goes back to how a lot of internet startups are often valued at, at in Facebook, for example, is valued at um, either market cap or revenue per user. Um, uh, monthly user, monthly active users, for example, is a very popular metric for these kind of internet companies. Um, I think the challenge is that um, you know Bitcoin's address space is limited. Like you, there's only you know. Uh, what is it now? Three, four megabytes available per ten minutes to add to um, the Bitcoin um, blockchain. So, so there's a limit there. Um, and uh, the other challenge is that in periods of low um, low transaction fees, anyone can just spam the blockchain and add more transactions and create more addresses. That doesn't mean that we're seeing meaningful activity. So that's always been the kind of you know, where, where I was uncomfortable with network value or NVT as a way to really value Bitcoin is that, yes, it measures activity, but doesn't measure meaningful activity. Um, that's that's something that I'm so so I, I prefer to not use that measure to decide whether or not Bitcoin is is um, is, is at fair value. 
even though it, so far it has, you know, the, to be fair, the signals have been fairly reliable. Um, but I think that especially as we run into these capacity limits, uh, it might just really lose um, uh, lose um, potency. Right. And I think Willy Wu himself came out and said, well, look, now with um, Blockstream Liquid, it might actually lose some of its predictive power because some of that might now, some of that larger volume might now be going across using Liquid. True that. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, so I suppose some of the next work kind of, I think that was sort of a landmark in 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 this kind of idea of blockchain data analysis, I think is Dhruv Bansal's HODL waves. Do you want to comment a little on, you know, what are your thoughts on HODL waves? Yeah, fascinating research. And, and, I, and this was 2018, but really to, I think to appreciate HODL waves, you probably need to go back to 2011 when... Um, some some early Bitcoiners came up with this idea of Bitcoin days destroyed, um, and the idea is that um, you um, you every t- so the idea is that every time one Bitcoin is not spent for an entire day, that's one Bitcoin day. And so if I have one Bitcoin and that one Bitcoin is a thousand days old, basically it has not been spent in a thousand days. And then I decide to spend it, then I'm destroying a thousand Bitcoin days. And so you can aggregate that across the entire blockchain and, and look at how many days are there destroyed every day. Um, and that's that's fascinating because it really it, it communicates that there's meaningful activity there. Um, there's something, you know, if a lot of days are destroyed, that means a lot of old coins are moving. That must have some significance. So that was all the way back in 2011. And then for a long time, nothing really happened with that. You could you could see the measure on uh, blockchain info in the in their chart pack, and then eventually in um, twenty fourteen, uh, John Radcliffe he uh, published this analysis of the blockchain where he also looked at the age of coins, the age of bitcoins, based on when they were last used. Um, and uh, and it was just this kind of elegant graph that showed like oh yeah look th- this many coins are uh, today this many coins are uh, six months old or younger and this many coins are between one and two years old and so on and so forth so so he did that in 2014 and then uh, in 2018 recently Dhruv um, who is CSO at Unchained Capital he took that idea a bit further and and uh, presented it in a more elegant way and updated the work. Because uh, it hadn't really been done since 2014, and uh, suggested this concept of hodl waves, where you could literally see how uh, the age of the coins varies over time, and and in particular, what you can see is that uh, when Bitcoin uh, rallies a lot in price, um, we see a decline in old coins, which basically means that um, um, there are liquidations happening, value realization is happening. When uh, a lot of retail money flows into Bitcoin, the, you know, quote unquote, original gangsters uh, often decide to sell some coins or to move them around. Uh, and so that's, I think, uh, just really fascinating and interesting. Um, and and I, I can, I don't know if, 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 if you allow me, I can expand a little on how, how, you, can, how you can develop some measures from that. Okay, so... That's a little bit of detail and a little bit of context around this idea of hodl waves and, you know, Bitcoin days destroyed. And I think maybe the next idea 
that was significant in my mind was this concept of realized cap. And that was uh, sort of valuing the aggregate value of the UTXOs priced by their value when they last moved. So do you have any reflections on that tour? Yeah, I think that's that's really interesting because it's kind of, it really, it's it starts going into like, well, is this, is this blockchain meaningfully used? Uh, because if you and I create a new coin and uh, it has like a supply of a, a billion, let's say, and um, and then you and I decide to move a thousand coins back and forth all the time, we can seemingly generate a lot of meaning, a lot of activity. But but what realized cap allows you to do is that it allows you to debunk that and allows to prove that look, you guys only moved a few coins. Um, the realized cap of your blockchain is very low. So I think this is um, this was an important step. Um, and then if you um, did, uh, if you uh, um, subtract the market cap from the realized cap, what you then get is the unrealized profit and loss. So that's really interesting where you can start aggregating um, and, and, and looking whether the average Bitcoin investor is either underwater in dollar terms or is in the green where he has unrealized profits. And that, that ratio is, is super interesting. You can also then divide it again by the market cap to like see it on a relative basis. So then you get the relative unrealized profit and loss. And that really is, I think, a very powerful sentiment indicator. If you can estimate whether the market as a whole has uh, large realize, unrealized profits, um, then maybe that says something about how uh, people are very confident, how uh, maybe at some point there's exuberance. Um, and then on the downside, if, if on, uh, on average, uh, sorry, in the aggregate, if people are facing losses, well, then that probably means that um, the sentiment is, is much more negative and that you can start talking about undervaluation. Right. And then I guess if I understand you correctly, then you would use that to try and perceive where the market is sitting, like emotionally, where are most of the people collectively feeling and also based on that, understand, well, okay, if everyone, if there's a lot of people who are kind of have lost hope and are feeling, you know, capitulation, so to speak, then that is theoretically a good time to start purchasing more Bitcoins. Is that how you would think about it? Yeah, that's what we've seen through. Uh, yeah, that's that's what we've seen uh, through these Bitcoin cycles. Is that uh, especially you know the retail public uh, that didn't really have a long term game plan. Like they get involved, they're very excited. They have this idea that you know they're going to multiply their 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 investments. And then when it goes, you know, when it goes up a lot, it's great. When the value melts away, it's still great. But as soon as they start to get underwater where they, they really are facing dollar-based losses, that's when sentiment really quickly goes, um, you know, ice cold and, and, and eventually people just walk away and they feel disgusted. Uh, they don't have anything to do with it. And that's, yeah, like you say, that's, that's when using the word capitulation is, is uh, appropriate, I think. Let's let's talk then about I think you, you're some of the new suggested valuation tools and one of the key measures that you suggest to explain is this concept of liveliness. Can you go into that? Yeah. So so we were talking earlier about these hollow waves where you can see like oh you know the the coins between age two and three two years old uh, to three years old 
these coins are uh, diminishing in quantity, for example, and we see more recently moved coins and things like that. Uh, but the challenge with that is that um, um, you you um, you don't get a clear signal or, or unambiguous utility. Like you see an interesting graph, but 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 then what do you do with it? And so um, what our advisor Thomas Bloomer came up with um, uh, several months ago is this idea of liveliness as one single measure that focuses on the coins that move relative to how long they were previously dormant. Um, and, and the way you calculate li liveliness is by um, uh, adding together all the Bitcoin days destroyed and then dividing that by the sum of all the Bitcoin days that were ever created. And so basically, uh, the more meaningful activity we see, the more coins are destroyed, the higher the liveliness is going to be. It's a percentage. It goes from zero to 100. Um, and so that gives you just one single data point, a single um, measure that evolves over time that gives you an idea of whether a particular blockchain has a lot of meaningful use. Are there a lot of uh, days destroyed? And then also it indicates it'll be lower, for example, if there's a high inflation rate in the coin, then the liveliness is going to uh, be lower than in a case of a currency with a capped supply. So so it's, it's a very powerful tool. And you can imagine, for example, a lot of people use um, market cap these days to value, uh, to kind of look at how valuable a, um, a, 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 a cryptocurrency is. So for example, with Litecoin, you would just say, what is the total supply of Litecoin? What are all the Litecoins that were ever mined? And then you multiply that by the price, and there you have it, the market cap. But the challenge with we already discussed it a little bit earlier. The challenge with that is that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't say anything about meaningful use. And so what you could do is you could multiply the market cap by liveliness, and then you get a corrected um, market cap that in the case of you know, some kind of scam coin, all of a sudden you get a very low value. And in the case of Bitcoin, where the liveliness is close to 60%, you would get a very high number. So so I think that's some work to be done where uh, liveliness is used uh, as a way to kind of adjust for meaningful use of, um, of blockchains. And in the case of Bitcoin, the really cool thing is that it allows you to start estimating um, how many coins are being meaningfully held by Bitcoin savers? And then from that, you can derive uh, whether people are accumulating more coins or whether in the aggregate they're actually dishoarding and, and selling more coins. Um, and that is kind of the equivalent of insider buying and selling. So, so you know, these are that's the what we call the hodler position change, where you can start estimating, for example, on a monthly basis, are in the aggregate Bitcoin holders, are they selling coins or are they accumulating more coins? And that's, of course, very interesting, you know, knowing what if you could know if you had a way to know what long term gold holders are doing at any given time in the market, you would want to know that if you if you are a gold investor to decide whether or not gold is, is uh, undervalued or, or overvalued at any given time. It's a fantastic point you make around. It's, this is an unprecedented thing. We could never have done this in the market for gold, but we can do this in the market for Bitcoin to some extent. Obviously, it's not a perfect science, um, but it is an interesting idea. And I, I like that it, it, in, in some sense, it's trying to help understand what are the whales doing? What are the sort of people who were around for a long time? What are they doing with their coins? And 
I suppose just to kind of articulate how they might have thought or how they might how they might have gone through this. They might have bought some coins early and then, you know, the crazy, you know, November and December 2017 run-up happens. And then some of them would have thought, well, hey, um, this is a pretty good price. I might as well, you know, take some of that out and buy a house, buy a car, whatever, and then go back to hodling for the, you know, for the rest of their position. Um, so in some ways, this is kind of a way to try and interrogate through using data science and the blockchain to try and perceive that. Yeah, the, like one interesting observation, for example, is that what we've seen, like looking at the blockchain starting from 2012, is that every time a previous all-time high is reached, so for example, that would be in, um, let's see, early 2013, in uh uh, late 2013, and then again in late 20, uh, sorry, in early 2017. For example, in early 2017, that's when the thousand dollar was achieved again after after the, the two year bear market. Um, we saw a really significant dishoarding. So uh, Bitcoin holders, they they had been waiting for two years, and psychologically, it was really important to them that um, that the previous all time high was reached, and so they felt. The thing that they wish they had done in early 2014, like basically sell some more coins, finally they allowed themselves to do that in early 2017. Like the old all-time high is there, let's sell some coins. And so we see this dishoarding happen uh, just all the way through early 2018. And that's kind of when the you could say the whale selling started to become exhausted and you saw accumulation again. Fantastic. And I guess... We're, we're, we're speculating here, obviously, too, but do you believe that some of those people who were who maybe they had bought during 2013 uh, and then they were selling at the start of 2017, as you mentioned, do you think that they were selling in a... Because, you know, in their mind, like to try and in, get into their head in terms of investor sentiment, were they thinking... I want to try and, you know, maybe I bought at like $800 and, oh, now I can sell for a thousand so I can sort of take out, you know, some of my um, initial money. Or do you think it was more like they had maybe bought at like 200 and they wanted to sort of sell at 1000 just to try and sort of quote unquote lock in some of their gains? Yeah, I feel like it's more about locking in. Um, I, that's kind of my hunch. It's like locking in some gains and, and to kind of, you know, maybe it's, it, you know, the bear market was rough, especially for people that had significant exposure there. They saw a, a downturn of 85 percent, like massive decline in value of their, you know, at least psychologically of their portfolio. So to kind of have some relief um, to, to at least psychologically like, oh, yes, I, 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 I made some actual profits off my Bitcoin. It's like I can tell my wife, like, look, we did a three X on Bitcoin or, or 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 we doubled our money with Bitcoin. Uh, and that doesn't mean that they sold everything. Of course, you know, in the aggregate, they didn't. Um, yeah, I, I would say that's that's probably the strongest um, motivation for people. Or you know, it's more diversification, right? They may, maybe they sold some Bitcoin to to invest in some some assets that maybe are related to the ecosystem. Maybe they were starting to diversify in in some altcoins as well, because they you know that was the start of the ICO boom. Right, yeah. So they could have thought, "Oh, hey, I, I can gamble a bit on these other coins because whatever." Right? Maybe, they, maybe they were like, "Damn, I, I missed out on Ethereum, and now there's all these other coins coming up. Let's, you know, let's try to hitch a ride with those." Oh, precisely. Yeah, people may well have done that. I guess. Okay, another concept I was keen to just get your thoughts on 
do you, are you a believer in this whole halving Bitcoin block halving? You know, every four years the subsidy drops in half. Um, are you a believer that that is a supply shock that then drives the next bubble, or do you think it's something else? We're doing some research into this, like currently. Um, my hunch is that my belief is that value investors who invest in Bitcoin, they look at the 21 million number and they basically just take into account that this supply is going to increase. So, so basically they price in these supply, um, these, this diminishing supply factor over time. Um, I do think to some extent it, it can be a catalyst of, of an already existing trend where like, you know, there's there's this the miners are going to get less coins and and uh, it's going to be less supply that comes into the market, um, and and also miners anticipate the having and so they decide to hold on to some more coins. They hoard more coins as the having approaches because they know that they'll only get fifty percent of those rewards anyway after after the having. Um, so so if anything, I think it's a catalyst. I don't think it's a fundamental trend driver. So I think it's very dangerous to think. You know, it's guaranteed that we're going to have this massive rally before uh, the next halving. And also, you have to keep into uh, you know keep in mind that um, annual inflation, uh, and I mean the definition of inflation that I use here would be just increase in supply. Uh, it it originally was I think twelve percent or something like that, and then with the the halving, it went to about five percent, um, and then now it'll be like two and a half percent after the next halving. So every time the effect becomes less and less, uh, you know, like right now in, in the gold mining world, for example, gold miners only um, manage to add about 1% of additional supply to the existing above ground supply, just because there's already so much my gold mine, the easy, the low hanging fruit is gone. It'll be similar with Bitcoin where, yeah, I just, I think you have to be careful to like, to think about it as like this season, like I've seen it often in seasonality where people are like, oh, you know, gold is in season, like um, the summer doldrums. And then there's like a rally. And at that point, like, I think it's dangerous to just assume that it'll come back because it's happened in the past. Like Bitcoin has only seen what now three happenings. Am I right? No, it went from 50 oh, to two. 25 and then to 12 and a half. So yeah, only two. I think that's, that's not a big data set, so so I, I'm I, I want to be careful to, you know, to to throw it in there as as a, a massive factor. Right. Yeah. So I think the other point that would be made is just that you know knowledge is not given to everyone, and many kind of newbie investors who buy into Bitcoin they may not sort of be aware of the dynamics around the halving. Um, so that that may be one point to consider, but uh, but also I would recognize that perhaps we're seeing this phenomenon of the cycles elongating. Do you have any concept? Do you have any thoughts on that concept? Yeah, I think it's, it just fits, it just fits together so nicely. I, it always kind of makes me, makes me skeptical of the theory because it's so elegant <laughs> to think like, you know, Bitcoin has these cycles and um, it's a commodity. And so it's maturing into, into really a full fledged mature commodity like oil or like wheat or gold and so just like in the commodities markets, eventually we'll have these 20-year cycles. And so the way to get there would be that gradually the Bitcoin cycles are going to lengthen more and more until we get to that lower volatility, long-term cycle um, situation of, of other commodities. 
Um, you know, but but even though I'm you know trying to be my own devil's advocate, I haven't really found strong counter arguments um, as to you know this happening. It's it's Bitcoin is ten years old, and we are actually seeing you know the volatility is slowly declining over time. The the cycles are lengthening, so. I think it's a it's a very valid and, and important um, kind of piece to the puzzle if you want to understand Bitcoin's price dynamics. Precisely. And also just wanted to get your thoughts around the potential for some of these blockchain analytics and data science potential to be diminished by coming changes. So let's say increased use of Lightning Network, or if, let's say, someday confidential transactions were to come to Bitcoin, would they reduce the ability to actually do this kind of blockchain data analysis? Well, that's interesting. And I, we've thought about this quite a lot. Um, I So for one, obviously, de-anonymization would be, you know, a lot harder if Schnorr were to be merged into Bitcoin and, and some other things like where we actually get a lot of use of confidential transactions. Uh, but you would still be able to uh, determine the age of, uh, of Bitcoin transactions, of meaningful Bitcoin transactions. And so the, the idea of liveliness, um, all the measures that we, uh, we talked about would still be uh, you would still be able to uh, calculate those. At least that's my understanding. I'm, I'm happy to be corrected. Um, and then when you think about maybe liquid, the liquid sidechain, or if you look at lightning, like these are other ways in which Bitcoins will be moved around. That is true, but the blockchain is still going to be the ultimate um, settlement uh, system. So it's kind of like, you know, looking at um, large scale gold settlement transactions I think it's it's fair to say that those are more meaningful than uh, how the gold ETF is moving. Because I think a gold ETF is much more going to reflect retail markets, whereas, you know, moving tons of physical gold around the world, that is more likely to be the long-term savers of gold that, that are starting to speak. And I think it's similar for Bitcoin. I think that... Um, almost by definition because of how this you know how this protocol stack is is built up where the most secure layer is the bottom layer uh the most meaningful bitcoin transactions will always happen on the blockchain fantastic insights i 100 percent agree i think ultimately we have to view each bitcoin transaction as kind of gaining weight over time that right now it could just be like in the early days people did use it for coffee but over time it will become uh, very large, you know, m many, many transactions will be sort of contained within one Bitcoin transaction, if that makes sense. Yeah, like one, one, if one way to look at uh, or to compare, if you will, uh, to the gold world would be to look at the London Bullion Market Association, which is uh, the, the, um, the place where um, uh, wholesale settlement of physical gold transactions happen. Um, and uh, I, I need to look up the exact number, but the daily amount of transactions that are settled on that platform is extremely low. And I remember calculating that the average transaction size of the LBMA is $7 million worth of gold. Um, and so, of course, if you if you project forward and, and, and think about the Bitcoin blockchain being such a such a, a core um, wholesale transaction settlement system and, and the average say that the average size of a Bitcoin transaction goes up to maybe thousands and thousands of dollars. It could be $100,000 worth of coins on average for every transaction. Then, of course, you can imagine much higher fees, 
Uh, and of course, with that, uh, a much bigger and beefier firewall, you know, the, the Bitcoin mining security would then have all those transaction fees as, as uh, fuel to, um, to make sure that Bitcoin stays safe. Fantastic. And last uh, kind of area I was keen to touch on with you, Tor. Actually, we're sort of calling back. I just It just occurred to me as now as well. One of your earlier articles, and this is now, what, five years old, Bitcoin as the new petroleum. So I think it's a, it's a, it was a great article, very um, forward-looking. And in, in this article, you talk a little bit about some of these ideas around how customers will demand certain things, right? They will want kind of deposit banking. They will want kind of verifiable reserve audits. They might want lending and borrowing brokerage as a separate service. So I'm just curious, do you see a future where we have Bitcoin full reserve banking? Yeah, and I think that it's going to be this incredible, it's just going to be so fascinating, this incredible tension between, you know, on the one hand, full reserve banking, and on the other hand, uh, the, the the desire to go fractional, fractional reserve banking. Uh, and it's understandable if you think of it, right? I mean, people entrust you as an entity with thousands of Bitcoins, say, and the only thing you can do is just sit and stare at them and and charge them a little fee for holding it, maybe like half percent or one percent for holding onto those coins. Even though it's such an incredibly liquid asset, it becomes very tempting to say, well, you know, what are the chances that we get a bank run where people are going to withdraw 80% of the coins, you know, that's very low. Let's just start lending out uh, some of these coins and make an extra return. And then maybe we can even start paying our depositors an interest rate. Um, but the challenge with that is that, uh, you know, in absence of a central bank that's ready to be the lender of last resort and, and bail out the banks, uh, you have a risk of failure. And, 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 and these things can escalate very quickly. Like, you know, the, the Trace Mayer suggested proof of keys event if people really start doing that and and withdrawing you know large amounts of coins from these exchanges then you know that'll be making it clear who is swimming naked so to speak if if the tide recedes um and so i think that's why really trying to trying to emphasize audits of um, bitcoin exchanges and trying to build tools that make it easier for exchanges to um audit reserves in a way that still preserves um, their their um, uh, customer confidentiality because that's always the challenge if you if you try and audit uh, how do you audit without de-anonymizing your customers and revealing to the world um, who is banking with you but so yeah I mean absolutely I think that full reserve banking is, is already the case right I mean at least in theory all the Bitcoin exchanges are what you could call full reserve banks um, Especially the the shops like Zappo, you could really, I mean, that's a full reserve bank right there. Uh, places like Gemini that do cold storage, that's a full reserve bank. Um, I think the the interesting you know time is coming where people want a return on their Bitcoin, and then there's these shops that say, hey, you can do it here. Um, and 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 the risk is that they'll start making these impossible promises of like, oh, we can make you a return, but also your Bitcoins are always available to you, which is not possible, right? It's a it's a, a dance of chairs. It's only a matter of time until you're the you're the marginal customer that can no longer withdraw um, because of the problem of maturity mismatch. Fantastic insights as well, and I can see again the parallels between the Austrian full reserve and fractional reserve banking debate coming up again. And so there yeah. would be some who believe that 
well, that could be a good thing because customers can earn more. But then on the sort of more full reserve argument side, it's more like, well, you know, why would that such a thing be necessary? Speaking in a macro sense, why would such a thing be necessary? That could also create the business cycle, as you, as you, I'm sure you're aware. Exactly, exactly, and it's it's exactly the cause of. I mean, it's it's one of my, uh, you know, pet peeves is that the 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 ultimate cause of business cycles is not just a natural phenomenon like the weather, where it's like, oh, storms they come and go. It's really the credit expansion of fractional reserve banks that cause. Uh, very serious capital misallocation, and then the crisis is just correcting for that. Um, and so I think that uh, having a, an, uh, an economy with many more full reserve banks would basically um, allow credits to be priced accurately and to not be artificially cheap. And then we would avoid a lot of these bubbles. I think it would really allow, you know, look at the 19th century, especially second half 19th century one of the most prosperous periods in uh, in world history, and 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 it was all built on on gold standard banking, um, just this very solid uh, basis to 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 have sustainable growth on. Fantastic. I think we're we're in one hundred percent agreement there, Tor. Um, so look, I think it, we're unfortunately coming to the end of our time. So Tor, I'll just give you an opportunity if you've got any, perhaps if you've got any closing thoughts on where you see the Bitcoin ecosystem, you know, out of projecting out over the next few years. And lastly, then just finish up with how the listeners can find you and sign up for updates. Yeah. So um, you probably have show notes. So so I'll probably have a link for that. Like we have uh, uh, investment research that we share. Uh, or general market research, actually. And um, and then people can find me on Twitter. Uh, just Google my name, and the first link is my, my Twitter account. I'm, I'm there pretty much every day. Um, and then in terms of where I see the market going, uh, we're putting out a piece uh, soon. That'll be out, I want to say next week, but it'll be you know within the next two weeks we're putting that out. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll refrain from summarizing it. It's It's um, it's it's going to be in there. Um, I guess the, the 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 basic idea is that we are currently in the accumulation phase, as this is where the retail public is not interested. But it is at the same time the phase where value investors are accumulating Bitcoin, and it'll form the base for the next bull market. Fantastic. Uh, look, that's all been really um, great discussion, and I'm sure the listeners will love to hear this. So thank you so much for coming on the show tour. Happy to be here, Stefan. It was great. Thank you. All right. There you go. What did you think of that? I think Tor has a lot of really cool insights that has that have been won through years and years in the space. And he's particularly good with using parallels to other markets to try and help explain what's happening. Another cool factor was this whole concept of full reserve Bitcoin banking, which I'm quite keen to see how that evolves and how that plays out over time. So make sure you are, you are subscribed to the podcast. You can find it on Apple, Google, Spotify by searching Stefan Levera Podcast. And lastly, if you enjoyed it, make sure you help share the episode, post it on Twitter, post it on Reddit, Telegram, wherever else. Thanks very much, guys. Chat next time.